Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called A Peek Behind the Curtain at Church Headquarters, Part 1. Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. Today, we're going to continue the chat we started last week with Brian Harris. If you missed that one, please, please go back and listen to it. It was a fantastic discussion. We covered Brian's uh, time working in the church headquarters. We talked about his religious deconstruction and how that coincided with his time working there. And we also covered many of the overall workings of church headquarters. We didn't dive really deep into any specific subjects, but we covered a real broad view of what it's like to work in church headquarters. So it was a fantastic discussion. Without further ado, welcome back, Brian Harris, to the show. Thanks. Good to be back. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into some of these uh, subjects that you had sent me when we first talked. And I, I wish we could have covered them last time, but there was just too much to go over in one conversation. Yeah, there's, there's a lot. There's six and a half years of work-related projects here. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a few episodes, maybe. I don't know. Now, before we jump into this, in our conversations in the background, you said that there was a correction that we had to make to something that we said last week in our discussion. Oh, yeah. So... Uh, you were asking about like how we identify people for the surveys that the church sends out. And I had mentioned like we definitely look for people that are active. Uh, I think I specifically mentioned we want people that are attending church three out of four weeks, typically. So we, we don't have any direct records of that in church membership records. So what we have there is like ward level aggregate or stake level aggregates. Okay. We never had access to any kind of individual attendance reports. Uh, those, those things don't ever make it past like the Sunday school president or the elders quorum president. So in our surveys, we would have a separate screener that would ask people, um, how often are you attending church? And so we didn't. Yeah. So they would self-report and that's how you would filter. So we've got a number of, of topics to discuss and we can go anywhere really with this, with this conversation. Yeah, there were, there were two projects or kind of clusters of projects that I think really made my time there enjoyable. Um, so a lot of the work that I did with the public relations department and public affairs, uh, that was really interesting to me personally, just because they were kind of targeting my same demographic and trying to understand people. Uh, and so for me to be a part of that project kind of felt like I understand these people, I can relate with them they're opening up to me and telling me things because they know that I'm kind of one of them in a way. And then I can be that mouthpiece and, and kind of translate that back to the church. So for the listeners, uh, what demographic is that specifically that you're talking about? Uh, so that was uh, back in 2013, 2014. It was around the time that all those gospel topics essays started coming out. Uh, the, the church, specifically public affairs, wanted a better read on 
how are millennials and young people and people who are still kind of right in the middle of their education, how are they responding to this? And is it making any difference for their testimony, for the things they understand about the church, how they're relating to their friends, uh, kind of tying it into uh, their experience with Institute and things like that. So these surveys, were they specifically asking about the Gospel Topics essays? Uh, a little bit. And and these were in-person interviews. Uh, so some of them were one-on-one -on -one interviews. Uh, some of them were focus groups in the larger areas that we went to. Uh, but I actually did kind of a, a research road trip for this project. And I started in Manhattan, Kansas, and I drove all the way up to Chicago, just stopping at every college along the way where there was an LDS Institute. And so and then in each town, you know, different town each day. Uh, then I would just meet with a group of Institute students. Some of them had very serious questions about the church. Some of them were history PhD students and they're, you know, kind of grappling with what is the history of the church in a broader context and things like that. And, and, you know, some of them were just undergrads, barely 18, uh, coming out to college for the first time away from their parents and kind of being exposed to some of these things and now they're on their own and they don't have that same kind of social support that they might have had with a youth leader or something like that. So you're asking these questions, you compile all the statistics. Were they trying to just to measure the reception of these essays or were they trying to gauge activity rates for millennials? So this is a very qualitative project. So there's not a lot of uh, specific numbers that went into the reporting. Yeah, because it's not yes or no questions. These are open-ended discussions. Yeah, it's, it's a very general kind of, you know, in general, when people read these essays, are they understanding it in the way that the church intended? Are they drawing the conclusions that the church wants them to draw? Does it lead to further questions? Does it lead to uh, maybe more dissatisfaction? And, and at the time, there was still kind of a debate at church headquarters in terms of do we hide this information or do we share it and inoculate the youth in a way against some of the bigger questions that they're going to come across later. So was this something discussed in, you know, in the halls of HQ or is this something that you guys talked about, these gospel topics essays? Yeah, so this, the essays made a really big splash, I think generally. Uh, there, there was a lot of reporting about them in the local newspapers around Utah. Um, you know, a little bit of chatter just in different online spaces with like, hey, have you seen this? Like, my mind is kind of blown. Check this out. And, th and then a lot of people just kind of talking about like, well, that's an apologist's view or no, that's really good history or trying to kind of understand how much can we trust these essays? How complete are they? So those are all things that we kind of at headquarters were all aware of. We knew that the essays had come out. We knew that there was web traffic to those pages. We just didn't know exactly what happens after that. So after somebody reads it, then what? What type of person is going there to read it? So the purpose of this, this survey that you're talking about, this road trip that you went on, was to assess the people that had encountered these essays and figure out what the reception was of them? Yep. So that was part of it. Uh, the other big part was, are we even hitting the right topics? So are there questions that are bubbling up? from among millennials that haven't been addressed or are there questions that should be addressed at some point? Were there any questions that came up that, that haven't been addressed yet that were coming up regularly or was this something you feel like they covered most of what people were asking you? I, I think they, they started with probably the most important and relevant ones. 
I think when they first came out, there were like five big ones that were really creating waves. It was like the book of Abraham. It was the history of polygamy. It was multiple versions of the first vision. Um, a couple of those, I think those really were the biggest historical issues. I think maybe something that was missing early on was current issues or like not ancient history issues like 1800s, but what about like 1930s issues or 1960s issues like civil rights and things like that? What about the McCarthyism that, you know, kind of ripped through BYU campus for a while? Like there were some other questions like that that sort of came up. But I think in general, most people were really pretty satisfied that the church had at least talked about the book of Abraham and some of those big issues. I think it's a great step in the right direction. You know, wherever you, wherever a listener finds themselves on a spectrum of belief, I think addressing the issues is an excellent step in the right direction. And I, I think the debate now about like, do we hide this information or do we share more of it? I think has largely been settled kind of leaning toward the more transparency approach. There's, there's just no way to keep this information from people. Uh, whether it's on our site or somewhere else, they're going to find it. And I think the consensus at church headquarters was we may as well at least give it to them in this environment where we can control a little bit of what's being said, how it's being talked about. It's one of those things that doesn't get discussed in Sunday school. It's not common knowledge that these essays even exist. Was that intentional? Uh, I don't know. Um I think they were officially re released initially right before I started working there. I never heard a big announcement about it. I think they just kind of quietly put them there, see what happens, almost like a soft launch of some new feature. But the people that looked for them and saw them and read them definitely knew they were there and definitely were talking about them online or offline. When I found them, it was like 2018. I had no idea that they existed and they had been around for years by this point. I'm in that same demographic that we're talking about where it's the target audience for these surveys that you're doing and also that these essays are directed towards. Yeah. And, and I think if there was an announcement, it probably was made in the same channel where the essays were anyway, you know, so if you navigate to the right part of LDS.org by chance, then there might be an article saying, Hey, by the way, we have these new gospel topics pages. But beyond that, I don't know if there was any fanfare. Did you have any any other surveys related to the gospel topics essays or research that you had done around them? No, that was that was kind of the big one. I mean, it, and it's always the kind of thing that comes up tangentially as part of other discussions. So any curriculum that's being written, okay, seminary needs a new curriculum that covers doctrine and covenants and church history. How much of this do we want to put in there? Because <laughs> we know. Uh, that that people are going to want to know, or at least certain people will want to know. Uh, some people, just by telling them, you're going to introduce now seeds of doubt that wouldn't have been there otherwise, but that they likely would come across at some point. And so you just always have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Like everything we've learned about people who begin to doubt the church or people who want to look deeper into the history, how can we treat them with I guess, just a basic respect in terms of transparency, uh, not actively lie to them, but you can also deceive by omission. One of the big things that came out of this research was just understanding that depending on 
your own personal demographic characteristics or your position within the church and its structures, uh, different issues are going to bother you in different ways. For men, uh, typically kind of a more privileged group within the church, men aren't as concerned with certain things that really bother women, like is polygamy still part of our doctrine, even if we're not practicing it? You know, that's a concern that women have to deal with and say, if I get divorced or if my husband dies and I remarry, like, what does that mean for me? And so that's very much a current issue for women, where in in the minds of most men, that ended in 1900, 1905. And we don't deal with that anymore, and it's irrelevant. And so just understanding that a faith crisis doesn't hit somebody truly at random you know there are there are ways that we can predict which issues are going to bother people in that way and and maybe they need a different response to it maybe a gospel topics essay about polygamy works fine for men but it really doesn't address the root of those questions that women have was this something that was discussed like having essays directed more towards different demographics uh kind of and And there's not a good way to publish an essay and say like, hey, this one's for men. (laughs) You know, that's awkward. (laughs) So (laughs) finding the right balance, like are we at least addressing the concerns of everyone rather than having maybe a group of male historian scholars writing for men? You know, is there a way that we can kind of bring that perspective and make it accessible and relevant for everyone else? So would you say that the versions that we have today, do you feel like they're more geared towards men than they are towards women? Or do you feel like they they hit their goal of gender neutrality, if you will? That is a good question. I haven't actually gone back to look at those essays for several years. I know they've expanded the scope of what topics they talk about, but I haven't looked into those particular essays. But I, I would love to go back maybe and check it out. I think the other thing with that road trip project that really stands out in my memory is just the way that people talk about why they were uh, selected for the study. I think a lot of people came in with some trepidation or hesitation, like, how did you find me? How did you know that (laughs) I'm struggling? Yeah, how did, how, does my bishop know that I have doubts? Right. And and there were some really interesting and I think very problematic things going on in that situation. Uh, so the way that we set up our recruiting was to go to the institute directors. So in, in each of these little areas, and, and most of these towns are not very big between Manhattan, Kansas, and Chicago. Not a lot of membership uh, in those areas and you know, the percentage of the membership that is actively like at college or in institute is going to be even smaller. Yeah. So we'd recruited through the institute directors and asked them, can you help us identify maybe six or eight people that you think might be able to talk about historical or social issues that, that are causing some concern among their peers. And so we weren't specifically asking like, can you identify the black sheep in your program? (laughs) but it was kind of like we're looking for people who are articulate we're looking for people who maybe have a wide social connection within your program that may have like maybe people have opened up to them and they can kind of speak on behalf of their peers or maybe they're people that have come to you looking for some kind of counsel uh, or had questions Um, 
But then as we went out to some of these areas, we kind of discovered the institute director is the stake president. You know, it's it's a small area of church membership where uh, that revealed some very interesting things. So so when people were talking to me, they would say, I'm telling you things that I would never bring up in institute just because of that power dynamic. And I do not feel safe expressing these kinds of concerns because of that ecclesiastical leadership role that he has where, you know, he will definitely tell my bishop and then my bishop might tell my husband or, you know, something like that. I've noticed, and this is anecdotally just from my own life, but when I left the members and those that were still active and still are active and believing, they have opened up to me about things and said things to me that they would never say in any other circumstances if I were part of the church for this exact fear. And I've had so many of these conversations with people that I know that they say things like, oh, you know, I, I watch R-rated movies or, or this or that, you know, whatever it is. And it's something that they would absolutely never admit to under any other circumstance. And it's things that might not be a temple recommend deal breaker, but it's something that they've been instructed not to do. <laughs> and they know that and they know that you know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. And, and, and so part of our segmentation study years later that we've talked about a little bit, we did find that people who are called into leadership positions like those bishops and stake presidents and even institute directors tend to be one type of member. And they're much more rigid in their thinking. They're a little bit more black and white. God says this. It is real. There is no question in my mind. And the way that I respond to dissonance is one way. And that's totally different for general membership and especially people who are going through some kind of doubt or faith crisis moment. What percentage then would you say would of, of leadership, local or otherwise, wouldn't fall into that category? That would be maybe a little bit more open or a little bit more nuanced? Yeah, I think, I think there's probably a good 20%, maybe 25% roughly uh, across a couple of different membership segment types that can kind of handle, you know, I've, I've heard all the history and maybe it doesn't bother me anyway, because I found some kind of way to deal with it in my mind. It doesn't cause me that kind of panic that it might cause someone else. It it doesn't lead me to respond in a fear-based way or in a control the situation type way. And, And I think there are a lot of members, you know, again, probably, probably about one in five that participate in the church because yes, they believe it. Yes. It provides some benefit to their family. Yes. It's culturally just how they were raised and brought up and that's good enough. And, and so they can kind of skate by even if there are deeper issues and they don't feel a need to go looking for those or, or hunting them down, but they're also the people that are not bothered by someone else having a faith crisis and they may not feel the need to intervene and save that person. Those types of members tend to make it higher up in the leadership. Uh, The the people that feel a need to say you're on a wrong path and I'm going to do something about it. Um, Those tend to be uh, filtering up into that leadership. So with this one, this survey that we're talking about, or this research you were doing, was there any sort of follow-up with these uh, individuals to see where they were five years later? So it was just like a snapshot research of that time. 
Yeah, just just a snapshot. You know, here's where they were at that moment. Uh, we can assume that some of them probably found a way to stay in the church. Some of them were clearly already on their way out at the time that I spoke to them. I talked to people who were married with children, you know, kind of in that young adult college raising a family phase. Other people who were just learning that they themselves were bisexual and like, maybe this isn't going to work out and I don't know where I'm going to be in two years. Um, But just a whole range of all of the people that you would expect in any kind of ward unit or any kind of institute program or seminary program. Like we know that there's going to be a certain percentage of our members who are gay. Um, And those are the people that we tended to find when we asked for recommendations from the institute program is who can we talk to um probably a little higher than the general population so i've always thought it was funny and you you being a statistics person this might be something that you might have a little bit more uh, insight on but if i'm not mistaken it's you know between three to five percent likelihood for someone to be born lgbtq plus like kind of on that that spectrum mm-hmm. but it's like so much more unlikely to be born into the LDS church. So you're more likely to be randomly born LGBTQ than you are to be randomly born Mormon. Yeah. But your your chances of being randomly born Mormon and LGBTQ <laughs> and to have a bishop who's okay with that, <laughs> that's a that's a, getting into astronomical territory there. One of the really big questions that came up over and over in every place that we visited that I think still hasn't been addressed by the church in any kind of formal way is just the question of what counts as doctrine. And then when we change our policies uh, and still say that the doctrine has never changed, but it's a policy that now goes directly against something that was formerly taught as doctrine. And now we say is not doctrine. Well, it's not the, the, the church would say it's not the doctrine that changed. It's our understanding of, you know, God's commandments. Um, but if you look at it in just a very slightly different way, it sure looks like the doctrines changed. Um, and then what counts as doctrine is only clearly solidified after the fact. Um, and so there's a lot of people asking questions like, how do I know that the church won't someday reverse its policy? on gay marriage in the temples or how do i know that that's actually doctrine or do we just think it's doctrine and all of our policies reflect that we think it's doctrine it's not hard to postulate a very similar situation to the priesthood ban with a temple ban for lgbtq plus members i mean in my mind I don't think that sort of a leap is out of the realm of possibility now do i think it'll actually happen Maybe, but it's, I see those two issues as very, very similar. Yeah. And it's very, um, it's a very emotional kind of question for a lot of the people that we talked to. Um, and so they're saying like, you know, I was raised in Missouri and I was being asked to make phone calls to people in California during prop eight. And like, is that really what God wants me to do? And if the church backtracks on this, say in 10 or 15 years, when it's finally socially acceptable and normal and the church decides, okay, we're finally going to get on the bus with this. 
I'm going to feel like a real jerk for doing what I was asked to do, doing it in faith. And it feels like a betrayal that this church that I put all of my trust into is now changing on me. And, and it feels like the church has cheated on you somehow, or, you know, they've turned their backs and they made you do the dirty work. I think one of the struggles that they might run into doing a change like that down the road is, is the internet and the accessibility of talks and discourse around a subject where when the priesthood ban was lifted, the internet didn't exist. And so most people, the average things they had access to were just the standard works and the ensign. And however many of those they kept back. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't give them to DI or recycle them. Exactly. And so things went down the memory hole a lot faster, a lot easier back then than they would now. And so I think they would run into issues with some of the talks that have been over the pulpit, even recently, that speak out against the LGBTQ plus members of the church. Yeah. And, and I, you know, even just this week, I saw another example online of somebody taking a screenshot before and after. Here's what this, you know, 2009 article said. And now here's what it says. Now you see the church kind of quietly moving the goalposts on a lot of these issues before something happens, um, where they, they want maybe plausible deniability to say, well, we never said it that way, or we never explicitly said that. Uh, but for the people who remember it, that's very real still. So do you see them writing a, what is doctrine gospel topics essay? I don't think they can. Um, and I've talked about this with colleagues and with other friends. I don't think that there's any definition that they can put into place that says what is doctrine, what is not doctrine without someday having to reverse that because there are so many things that, you know, prior to 1978, those were doctrine. They were taught as doctrine. And then, you know, after the fact they said, well, actually, no, it wasn't. I think the church knows that they're going to have their foot in their mouth if they draw a clear line around what is doctrine and what isn't. And that, that takes away the flexibility to kind of lean into that modern revelation or keeping up with the times or whatever you want to call it that eventually they're going to want to do. That's the difficulty of this subject because it butts right up against the idea of continuing revelation. And, you know, if there's a doctrine that we just don't know about yet, and someday it will be revealed, and it goes directly against everything we've done for the last 200 years as an organization, then what does that mean about our doctrine? I, I don't think anybody's ever been able to kind of satisfy that itch that a lot of people with doubts are kind of running up against. And, and that tends to be something that comes up a lot with both historical issues and social issues. Because prior to 1900, polygamy was doctrine. It's clearly written into the Doctrine and Covenants. You know, it's in all of the discourses from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young for a hundred years after the founding of the church. Almost, um, it was doctrine, or we thought it was. Maybe it still is, and we don't know. So you go and compile this information from these these surveys about the Gospel Topics essays, and and these other questions that you were asking. What did what do they do with this information? That's a good question. So we came back, we put together 
some presentations, spent probably 45 minutes with the public affairs, just general leadership, managing director, and some of the senior staff in that group. And they were all terrific to work with. I think they were all very empathetic. Um, when we bring in quotes from the people that we interviewed, you know, you see a lot of head nods around the table, like, yeah, I totally get where they're coming from. And at that point, we sort of just handed it off and it becomes someone else's job to fix it. And, you know, maybe that happens in subtle ways. I think a lot of the times that research just kind of sits on a shelf, like, man, I don't know how to address something that big, but, you know, someday when the time is right, we'll know. Uh, and pieces of that can fit in. And, and I think we did see a little bit of it. You know, like when the church had a big push for like the equality for all kind of language and, and the balance between religious freedom and the uh, lack of ability to discriminate against people. I think some of those issues do kind of creep into that discussion. Um, you know, how do our members feel about it if we take an approach that is so strongly this way or that way? And are we going to alienate our own people by taking a hard line on something that so you weren't part of the team at this point, but during the whole COVID pandemic, I'm sure they had to put a bunch of research out based on the reception of many members of the church of the prophet going and getting the vaccine. And there was an outcry from a lot of people about that. So is that something that you think that they would have done research on and maybe tried to make sure that their response was accurate or, or calculated? Yeah. Um, and again, I don't know for sure. I haven't heard anything from the people that still work there. I think it's entirely possible that there would have been some research. I think it's possible that there could have been a, a question or maybe two in that semi-annual member survey or the bishop survey. I think a lot of that kind of high publicity media stuff is largely handled outside of research. They want to respond to it very, very quickly. And so a lot of times they make the decision first and then kind of go back and double check and just say like, how far off the mark were we with what we expected? In the outline you sent me, you talked about millennials and faith crises. Was this part of that same interview that you were doing where they were doing segmentation on the membership or was this targeted specifically for millennials? With segmentation, uh, there were a couple of different segmentation projects that the church was involved in. Uh, one of those was handled kind of directly through the church's research division. There was also another one that was handled through uh, one of the creative agencies that the church owns and manages. What do you mean by creative agency? Bonneville Communications creates a lot of the media marketing materials for the church. Um, and, and they had a small research arm uh, years ago. They don't anymore. So there was kind of another segmentation that came through that group. Um, and that group is also very closely tied in with um, Deseret Book and some of the other kind of for-profit subsidiaries of the church. So they wanted to know for their own kind of marketing and sales purposes, who are we selling to and how do we make sure that we're giving the right assortment of products and materials. Uh, so that's kind of at the same time almost as what's happening internally within the church for segmentation. In a lot of ways, they do line up really nicely. But there's a, you know, kind of in the end of that segmentation process, what you end up with are like typing tools where you have a simplified kind of five or six question version of a survey that you can, with a certain amount of accuracy, 
start to estimate other things about that person, their personality and their, their worldview and perspective on things. So the primary purpose was advertising for these programs that, that you guys are working on, or was there any other reason for doing this? That's really the top reason is kind of marketing and making sure that we're crafting the message in a way that resonates with the people that we're hoping it resonates with. Now, marketing for these for-profit branches or marketing for like the Ensign or the website? I just want to make sure I'm understanding. Yeah, so that uh, the Bonneville Communications and Deseret Book group was more interested in kind of the marketing and like when we send out a catalog at Christmas time and, you know, give recommendations for what to get your mom for Christmas. You know, are, are we talking, speaking the right language, showing the right kinds of images, that kind of stuff. Uh, internal to the church, I think it was uh, a little bit more just how do, how do we talk about some of the church's programs? How do we talk about family home evening with this group versus with that group? Or how do we talk about the youth program in different ways to different people so that you, know, you can kind of tailor the messaging a little bit more? What were the categories that this segmentation broke members into? Um, I'm a little fuzzy on the specifics, um, but I, you know, in general, there's like five groups. Most segmentations kind of end up that way. Uh, there was a group, and and this is a little bit different for each group. So, the the internal church headquarters version had uh, cultural members and practical members that in some ways were very similar. Those are kind of, they are faithful, but they may be a little bit more laid back, the intensity to which they engage in the behaviors. So those are people that typically are reading their scriptures pretty frequently, but they're not going to hate themselves if they miss a day. Um, (laughs) They don't, they're not prone to that kind of scrupulosity that other groups might have. There was also a group of people who are more spiritually independent, who uh, are more likely to go kind of looking at their own sources. They're not going to stick to only church approved materials when they want to know something. And they're more likely to talk with family and friends that are not members of the church and ask questions about someone else's religion. So members that are cultural and practical kind of in that segmentation are more likely to just be very content with where they are. They're not seeking anything new or they're, they're not wanting to rock the boat. Um, and it's just kind of a comfortable, this is, this is what we've always done. It's working. I feel good about it. I feel the spirit doing it. I would assume that would be most of the members or am I, am I totally off on that? And, and that is a pretty good section. It's probably, you know, combined 30 ish percent, 30 to 50% of members that fall into that. So then what percentage would be the spiritually independent then? That's very small, definitely under 5%. Under five. So then the vast majority are these entrenched. And, and there are a lot of, of members that are more entrenched. And, and there's kind of two distinct levels of that entrenchment. Um, so the, the spiritually independent, that, that number I think is low for a couple of reasons. People who are in that sort of category don't opt into the church as converts very often. And people who are born into the church that find themselves in that category are likely to leave the church in short order. Now, this was a question I'd asked you last week that we talked about briefly is that you found yourself in this spiritually independent category as you're doing the research. Yeah. And I think there's 
a lot of life circumstances that can kind of take somebody out of a cultural or practical or the more entrenched style of Mormonism and almost force you into that smaller bucket. Um, so, f- you know, discovering something about your sexuality that doesn't fit with what you've been taught from the church can definitely kind of put you on that. Or maybe addressing it for the first time. Yeah. Um, you know, finding yourself in a mixed faith relationship you can definitely put you there. Uh, having a faith crisis and then never quite being the same afterward. You know, that's a door that you've gone through. You can never go back to the way things were before. Um, and so now you find yourself kind of reevaluating and, and maybe you find yourself in that smaller group. So that group is interesting to me personally. And like I said, that's, you know, when I took the survey, uh, testing out the segmentation tool, you know, that's where I landed. And I felt like that really does describe kind of where I'm at. And, and, and the way that you get that result is by answering survey questions like, do you believe that there is only one true religion that applies to everyone on the planet? And if you say no to that, you know, that's, that's pretty far to the outside of mainstream Mormonism. (laughs) You're not going to be an entrenched at all. (laughs) And see, you kind of end up in that category you know, if there's anything less than, you know, like 90% certainty that where you're at is the right place. Or even, even just those, cause I know, I know members that would say that there isn't a one true church, but they do believe in the LDS church. Yeah. Or this is a true church. And that's a very different thing than it's the true church. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so sometimes people with that attitude can also end up as kind of that practical or cultural mindset where, you know, I'm not worried about it. This is working for me. And maybe it's not the only true one, but it's working. The the other end of that segmentation is really where we see a lot of the church leadership, both general authority level and local leaders, especially stake president, Bishop Rick. Uh, We also see a lot of CES people in that group. So the people that opt into teaching a seminary as a full-time profession in places where that's an option. Um, we see a lot of those people kind of ending up in those positions. These are people that are very rigid. Uh, they have their minds made up. Nothing will ever change it. Uh, they're very entrenched. And, and so this is an interesting group because it's not who missionaries target. You know, if you find if you find a non-member who is very entrenched in their belief, your odds of swaying them or bringing them over are very small. And so most of the converts are fundamentally dissimilar to most of our leadership, which can create some dynamics that I think the church still has to wrestle with. But if you bring in a lot of people that are very spiritually independent, wanting to do their own thing, that's really going to butt up against local church leaders and, and their perspective and practice. It is interesting also that those leaders tend to select other leaders. Um, who's responsible for calling a new bishop? Well, it's coordination between the stake president and high council members and maybe a general authority that visits. And, and those people are going to be looking for someone that fits their image. You know, they're they're one of us. He's one of the most righteous and we can tell because he's like us. And, and so you have a lot of people that are kind of never really in the running for those leadership positions. And, and I think people know that instinctively and intuitively. Uh, we all know people from our wards that are 
very content knowing that they're never going to be called to be the next bishop. They know that and they're okay with it. And then you have the people kind of jockeying and almost campaigning for Relief Society president or whatever it is, (laughs) uh, kind of wanting to be noticed and picked by those people that they see as one of them. Uh, They're my leaders and I'm trying to be like them. Most people that they look up to and they want to emulate them. Right. And, and so that, that does create some social dynamics that I think structurally the church doesn't have any kind of way to manage. No amount of manuals or bishop training or you know any kind of training or general conference talks, like none of that is going to change the fact that our wards are more diverse than most people realize. Well, and as we were saying, for the gender difference on some of these these uh, gospel topics essays, they can't do, you know, five Sunday school classes, one for each segmentation. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not it's, it's not reasonable for them to, to tailor to everybody an individual lesson. And, and that's true in marketing, too. I work in marketing professionally now, uh, kind of doing that market research. And you can't chase every target audience. You, you can't target every segment. And so, so what do you do to kind of spread so that you're hitting the bullseye on what you want to say, but you're also kind of including those other edges? One of their main focuses, you know, the threefold mission of the church is to, to baptize and, and missionary work. If the largest section is these cultural and practical members, you know, and the entrenched ones, but, you, but as you said, you can't really sway an entrenched person from somewhere else. So their biggest target are these cultural and practical members. I would think that that would be where they would target most of their efforts. Is that something that you saw as you were working there and, and passing this information off? Yeah. Um, and I, I think you can see that if you watch closely some of the advertising that the church engages in, like when they do the full page takeover of Google around Easter and Christmas, they're, they're pushing this message of like, we're doing good in the world. It's not a message of we are right. It's the light, the world campaign, right? It's the, we're doing good, or it's the, we believe in Jesus. It's a very simple kind of message that those entrenched members feel good about because they're already convinced and uh, but it also doesn't alienate the people on the outside of the church. So, so if it was strictly up to bishops and stake presidents to design the messaging for the church, you could imagine a lot more. We're right. You're wrong. Get in line. This is the only way and more fire and brimstone. And I think there are some missionaries that lean into that message and, you know, on a door approach, you know, maybe that's the, the tack they use. And other missionaries are more content to just talk about their family. And if you bring them to church, we have this great support system. We've got a nursery and you can hear this message every Sunday. And so there's just a lot of variety there. But I think in general, the church's marketing right now is is clearly targeting a more general audience. It's, it's an audience that's less likely to be hardline members of their own religion. It's, it's just kind of open to anyone. That this is also kind of an example of what I mentioned earlier, talking about the millennials and their faith issues. When your stake president is your institute director and they fit into one segment that you are clearly not in, uh, you're going to assume certain things about them and they're going to assume certain things about you. Um, And that can make 
your own personal lived experience in the religion very different depending on who your leader is. And, and it does affect the way people kind of are able to exist in the church or the way that people are able to make it through a faith crisis before they're actually like cast out by their bishop. Because if, if you allow time and space for that process to work, you know, maybe somebody ends up kind of staying in. But if you have a bishop that's like, even your questions are out of line and you're wrong and uh, not allowing that time and space for processing, that's that's a very, uh, it's a quick way to alienate someone and push them out and make them feel less welcome. I've had personal experiences with leadership that would fall into probably every one of these categories, entrenched, independent, cultural, practical. I mean, it's, it's fascinating the, the variety of interactions that we can have just based on the way that they practice the faith. Yeah. And is there a right way to be a Mormon is kind of the fundamental underlying question there. For some people, there is, there is a right way. This is kind of the stereotypical Boyd K. Packer, you know, there is one approved way, the Lord's way to do this. And here it is. And, and for other people, it's personal. And, you know, my right way to practice religion is to study the Book of Mormon, maybe not every day, but mix it up with conference talks. And somebody else might say, no, the prophet said you read the Book of Mormon every day. Is there more than one right way to be a Mormon? Was that something discussed as you guys were presenting this information from these surveys? Was Is there a right or wrong way to live the faith? It was discussed. I wasn't personally involved in a lot of that, but I know that that was kind of a discussion item in the presentation when this is kind of shared out with the leadership across headquarters. Is there a right way? And it's something that's worth talking about. It's worth listening to others when that question comes up, you know, and especially telling the leadership when this question comes up, don't shut it down immediately. Listen, recognize that not everyone in the church sees things the way you do. And I, I don't know, I don't know exactly where that ended up or who's, who's answering that question, but I, I hope that it kind of trickles throughout the organization and that a lot of different teams are thinking about how to, how to not alienate people that may see the church differently than you. You're developing these segmentations, you're doing these surveys. One of the questions that I have, and, and, you, and you mentioned something similar um, in, in these notes, but what research went into some of these changes that they made, both in shortening from a three-hour to two-hour block or um, combining the elders quorum and the high priest quorum? Was there any sort of research along these lines? Was there information from these surveys that you gathered that went into that decision-making process? Okay, so that's a fascinating question. And I have a fascinating answer, I hope. So with shortening church from a three-hour block to two hours, there have been rumors of that for a long, long time. Anecdotally, when I served my mission in Chile, this is 2006 to 2008, they were doing a pilot program. And we had two-hour church for the entirety of my service in Chile. Interesting. Yeah, and, and anecdotally, I've heard other people say, Hey, my, my friend's cousin's roommate's brother is doing a pilot study of two hour church and they're not allowed to talk about it. And, uh, you hear these stories all the time. There had been a pilot study. I want to say maybe in the eighties or nineties that the research division was involved in. 
And since then, the research group hadn't done any research on shortening the block. And so we kept hearing these rumors, you know, so, so-and-so's stake is doing a, a pilot or this, this one ward is doing a pilot. And we didn't know anything about it in research. But I think maybe somebody else somewhere in the organization was doing a pilot and we were just kind of not in the loop. Chile had been going through, you know, always have had a, like huge baptism numbers, but retention was really bad. Elder Holland came and actually personally presided over the country for a time. And while he was there, that's when this started. And they were testing it out to see if it had any sort of impact on membership retention was what I was told by the leadership there. But I, again, I, I don't know. Yeah. And that would have made sense. That would be a reasonable speculation in the context of what was happening in that area. Yeah. So there had been pilot studies, but not for the past 30 years. And then when they announced that change, uh, kind of took everybody off guard in the research group. We didn't know about it. They made the announcement, guess it's happening. And maybe somebody <laughs> did some kind of top secret research outside of, of uh, our group. And I guess that's their prerogative if it comes down through their priesthood line of authority rather than through the headquarters and staff managing something like that. And we wouldn't have heard about it if it went straight from a general authority to the stake president. So then related to this, there have been a number of changes in the youth programs, stepping away from the Boy Scouts of America to developing a whole different program for the young men. What research went into this or what was that process like? Yeah. So I was involved in all of those. Uh, so when I first joined the division in 2013, they had just launched the come follow me manuals for the youth. Um, and so I was involved in the kind of follow-up, uh, post-test phase. So they had done kind of a big survey across, uh, the Philippines and Nigeria and the U S and uh, several different places where they had piloted this and kind of taken some survey pulse measurements before this change went live. And then we followed up and did the big survey after to see, does, does anything change, you know, by changing all of the curriculum, do they have more faith in God? Do they trust the book of Mormon to be true more or less or the same? I think any new product launch goes through a process like that. Does it accomplish what we designed it to accomplish? Well, many of these countries didn't have a young men's youth program the same way the young women did because they were not affiliated with the Boy Scouts of America. Yeah. Um, and so they, they had something called a duty to God program that was very Utah centric. Um, and, and I think the saints in the U S also used that program, but it wasn't the main activity thing, right? So Boy Scouts and the young women's medallion was the main thing. Um, and then for the boys outside of the U.S., they had the duty to God, which is a little bit overlapping with scouts, but not totally. And it's a little bit overlapping with what they're doing anyway during Sunday meetings or fast offering collections or whatever, but not totally. But uh, yeah, we also did some research on that program. You know, how is it working globally? And, it, you know, there were there were some examples in the duty to God program, like uh, find something to do outdoors, you know, with your group. Maybe you could go camping or hiking. But if you go to a Kragana, uh, where are you going to hike? Where are you going to camp? Is it even safe to do that? Is that culturally something that anybody does? And the answer to all of those is no, you can't do that. 
So just, it was very clear that these programs were written in the U.S. by people from the U.S. for people in the U.S. And there was very little global thinking. And so I think that was a big impetus for some of the later changes where we have now the, um, what do they call it? The strive to be, I think, uh, for both young men and young women, and it applies to the older children as well. Uh, So it's kind of a unified program where everything is basically the same for boys and girls, depending on age, they're doing their own thing. Uh, It's also designed to be very localized. So there's some structure, but not so much structure that it constrains people, but enough structure that people in areas where they don't have a lot of experience with managing church programs, uh, they, they still feel supported. So that's always kind of the tension, even back in the Come Follow Me manuals where they took away, you know, read paragraph one, then paragraph two, then ask these questions. Yeah. You know, that was very a rigid structure. And they had piloted something with almost no structure. And it was like, teach a lesson about the Godhead. And that's your instructions. In some parts of the world, that works really well. Anybody in Provo, Utah could teach that lesson. But maybe in El Salvador, your teacher is a new convert and they don't understand this doctrine themselves and they're going to be asking the missionaries to pitch in because they just can't do it. And so kind of trying to find not too much structure, but not too little structure and then find a way to give people guidelines on what they can localize. What can I choose to do for my area? Which things are off limits that I should not choose to do and kind of just giving that guidance without being too specific or prescriptive. You came in, you're doing these surveys. What did you guys want to know about the new program? Was it membership retention? Was it, you know, mutual activity levels? Like what, what were you guys focused on as you guys were going through and doing the research on, on this? I think it's kind of the things that you might expect that the church cares about. They want to know, are the young men advancing to the next rank of priesthood at the appropriate time? Um, are they, uh, as likely, you know, to go on a mission? We don't, we don't want to get worse. Maybe we're not going to expect to get better, but we don't want to get worse as a result of the program and just things like that. Uh, do they have a testimony? Are they connected with their peers? I think a lot of the church leadership really focuses heavily on those spiritual elements and the role that my team played was always to kind of balance that with, okay, but they also have biological needs. They have psychological needs. They have social needs. They have families. Like this is just one piece of a much bigger context in their life. Well, and and the scope of these programs has been all encompassing, at least as I was in them in my youth, you know, it, it wasn't just religiously centered. It was, it was many different aspects of my adolescence. Yeah. And, and so I think th- There's two things I want to say there. Because the church is not 100% of a youth's life, you can't expect changing this program will change their entire life. So temper your expectations with any change that you make. The most likely result is that it doesn't make a difference for most people. But who does it make a difference for? And what is that difference? So Uh, If you look at kind of the edge cases, this kid that's barely active and his parents don't want him there at all, but his friends are bringing him, you know, is this program changing for him or for her? Uh, Maybe, you know, is there something, you know, is there something that 
you know, kind of draws him in and, and develops a deeper friendship, that's a win. Uh, is there something that improves his relationship with his parents? That's a win. And so just kind of looking at it that way, like for most of the kids in uh, Highland, Utah, this isn't going to do it right. Their leaders are still going to be confident and happy with the progress the kids are making. Um, but really it's kind of for everyone else. And, and you said you were researching in the Philippines, Nigeria, as well as the United States for this. Uh, so yeah, Philippines was for the earlier curriculum changes. And then for the new activities program, we went to Panama and I want to say Nicaragua, New Zealand, South Africa, Nigeria, and I'm sure there's something I'm forgetting. Yeah, you <laughs> guys went all over. Se several spots across the U.S. and southern Canada just to kind of test it out. Did it have more of an impact abroad than it did locally in the United States? I don't know exactly uh, because they had kind of wrapped up, you know, they'd made all of the changes they needed to to the program during our pilot test. And then I left church employment. And then, and then they launched the program right after that. And so it was kind of the timing coincided that I saw all of the buildup and the development, but I didn't see the actual launch very clearly. But yeah, there's, there's a lot to say about how the church works internationally. It's a different beast. And they just have fundamentally different problems and different lifestyles and different ways that the church fits into their lives. And even just talking to people in Japan about the project and they're like, well, you know, this all sounds great, but our kids are all at school till 10 PM. They have these after school study cram sessions and like, they're not even around on weeknights. And so it sounds great, but it's never going to work if you mandate that it has to be a Tuesday night. You know, this is going to have to happen on Sunday because that's the day that they're here. And, and I think that was helpful information and context for the people who were developing the program just to know this isn't going to be one size fits all you can't say that it has to work this way for everyone because it just won't is this something that they gave unique instructions to each individual area or was the instruction for implementation about the same for everybody we tried to design it so that it could be the same for everyone uh, but then there were also explicit instructions that your area office is really the ultimate authority on how you use this program. So if the manual says it, you think there's a problem with it, talk to your area president um, and he'll give the guidance. This doesn't come back to Salt Lake. This is not a Salt Lake problem to fix. This is, this is yours. Who's well, there unfamiliar with the culture and the specific needs? Which, which I think actually uh, goes back to a lot of just really good best practices in international development and things. Let the people who live there figure out how to solve their own problems. And we provide support, but we're not going to colonize their youth program the way that we have in the past. Uh, so one of the other projects, and it's not a specific project, but there were a whole bunch of projects that involved sexuality and pornography. And uh, I think anyone who's spent any time around the church or in the church knows that that's a heavy focus and especially for youth especially for young adults um but you know even with missionaries they're kind of in that spot where they're between dating and trying to marry living a very different style of life but uh, the church has always been on 
the anti-pornography side, all pornography is bad. Um, any use of pornography, any amount of masturbating is bad, uh, kind of regardless of whether you're married or single or anything else. And so trying to push that message forward, uh, understandably, you come across a lot of barriers, including uh, just biological facts that <laughs> this is a natural urge for almost everyone at some point. Um, and, and just there was a lot of research around those areas, a lot of discussion about uh, how to combat pornography, how to talk about it with adults, how to talk about it with youth, how to talk about it with spouses and partners, how to talk about it with missionaries, because even in an environment where they have almost no access to technology, they're going to find a way or they're going to do something that they feel incredibly guilty about that for most professionals in this field is not a big deal. Or, uh, you know, maybe some of them it really is. And the mission presidents don't always have the tools to know the difference. So you say there's a lot of different research that they're going into this. Were they aware that their stance dramatically differed from like the leading psychology on this issue? Yeah. And, and I think they're proud of that. I, I think they view the field of psychology and counseling as uh, too liberal, uh, too open to suggestions of things that are spiritually harmful. So, so they might be right about everything that they're saying, except they don't have the spiritual knowledge that we have. And that trumps everything else. Even though we can't hammer down what doctrine and policy means. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, Sorry, and there that's is, just where my mind goes. <laughs> and there is some speculation, like in the people that we talked to, we heard people say, I'm fairly confident that the church is not talking about masturbation as much as they used to. Uh, and you can kind of go back and look at conference talks over a 30 year span and tally up who's talking about masturbation when, and they've kind of just silently quit talking about it as much as they used to, uh, at least at the kind of publication level or the general authority level. And, and maybe it's still a hot topic for bishops and they might still cover that frequently. Uh, there's not a there's not a good record of that. Um, so to some people's minds, they're saying, I predict in 10 years, they're just going to take masturbation out of the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet. They're just not even going to talk about it. And it's going to be up to individual discretion. And, and so we had people kind of saying, I think that's where the church is going. They're backtracking on this policy or this doctrine. Hmm. But silently. Silently. Uh, they're not going to announce that they've changed their stance. They'll just suddenly not take that stance. And, and if they're asked about it, they can say, well, that was a different era. That was the 1980s. And <laughs> You're doing this research on sexuality. I'm assuming also the LGBTQ spectrum and masturbation. Why? Why have you guys put so much effort into researching this? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons there. I, I don't know that the root cause of this was that the brethren really wanted to understand the issues better. I think the goals were always much more practical. So Elder Perry said, okay, we're going to give all these missionaries iPads now uh, because it's going to help them with the work. He got some pushback. You know, he was kind of the head of the missionary executive group. And, you know, there's pushback. Like, how can we trust these kids? They're 18, they're 19, they're... <laughs> 
underdeveloped socially, you know, the frontal lobe isn't completely there. How are we going to trust them with this technology? And, and he just says like, well, you know, sure, they're going to mess up and we could choose to trust them anyway. <laughs> it was kind of his position. But then the, the real practical issue to solve was how do we provide them with a structure or a culture or uh, physical restraints on the devices or like, what do we do to provide an environment where they can make the best possible choice, even given the fact that not all of them are going to. And so that was a big part of that was what kind of safeguards need to be in place. Are they social? Are they physical? Are they, you know, spiritual messages about this topic? Are they practical guidelines for what to do when you're feeling this way or that way? Um, and so that was a big part of that. Were you digging into the activities of these missionaries on the devices? Yep. Um, so, so we had uh, a lot of kind of in-field work where specifically around the Salt Lake City area, we would go out and watch them during their study sessions. Because um, it, it wasn't just the anti-pornography thing. It was, does the device actually add value? commensurate to the damage that it might cause. And so we had to kind of prove, is it, is it actually helping them study better? Is it actually helping them to teach better? So there was a lot of kind of qualitative and in-person observation that way. Uh, and then when it comes to misuse of the device, uh, we would talk to mission presidents and just say kind of from your perspective and with the people coming in at interview time every six weeks, uh, how big of an issue is this? And the mission president's wife would sometimes sit in those conversations and have some valuable input. And you know, sometimes she would be more likely to hear the confessions from sisters in the mission. So this was not monitoring the actual devices where you're getting the statistics on this, or was this was just from the mission presidents reporting on their missionaries? Yeah. So we didn't do any monitoring of the devices that way. Um, it's actually very difficult to set up the devices to do that. And especially in the earliest tests, they were using Apple products and there's almost nothing you can customize on an Apple product. And it's signed into a specific Apple ID and nobody else can see what's going on with it. So, so we tested with those and missionaries thought, you know, this is really great. I can airdrop stuff to my investigators. I can airdrop to my district meeting. But ultimately the Apple products were discontinued. Uh, in favor of that kind of being able to put on a custom skin for the whole device that locks it down into a church-owned OS, basically. Um, so they ended up using Samsung tablets, but then it would kind of override the Android operating system and put it in a church environment. But as far as like quantitative stuff, uh, we did have an annual survey. Just went out once a year right around April or May of each year. Uh, and it would just ask missionaries like, Hey, this is totally anonymous. We have no idea who you are. There's no way for us to identify you. How often in the past, you know, six months have you looked at pornography using your missionary device? Um, it's, it's specifically using your missionary device is what you said. Yeah. Specifically on the device. Um, okay. And the results to that were pretty interesting. Uh, very sensitive to the church. Uh, nobody knew that this study was happening, even within church headquarters. Like this isn't something he talked about on the elevator because it was just so tight-lipped. And and there's obviously going to be some kind of 
fuzz and noise in the data because not everyone even promised anonymity they're not going to feel totally safe or want to admit it and that that's true with any kind of sensitive survey but i think it's especially heightened with the missionary population this is such a delicate subject because i mean it is such a, a large percentage of young adults that engage in this activity and for the self-reporting to not accurately reflect that i don't know for me it's always been a red flag that that there's a lot of people not confessing or not being honest in these in the self-reporting and and you talk to mission presidents and say like okay well what how big is this issue and they might say something like i know that all of my elders are masturbating you know i know that there's a significant number of them that are probably finding porn somewhere but i can't send them all home I have <laughs> yeah. to I have to use what I have to get my job done. And I think in a way they feel like I know it's an issue but there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the whole labor force is young men with raging hormones. I mean, it is the time of their life where they are most likely to engage in this activity. Yeah, and there's just so little they can do except for keep talking about it all the time. And some of our research around pornography, not just with the missionary population, but across the church and youth, uh, the more you talk about it, the more likely they are to engage in it and feel incredibly guilty about it. And so, you know, if you talk about it less, they're still going to engage in it, but maybe without the shame or, uh, and there's just a lot of sensitivity in that area. And there's not a one size fits all that's going to adequately explain sexual health and sexual behaviors in a healthy way for all of the church population. Well, I, as a young man myself, I'm sitting there with the bishop, I'm 12 years old, and he asks me if I masturbate. And I asked him back, I don't know what that means. Can you tell me what masturbation means? And that, Is that I, Latin? I know, right? <laughs> I have to imagine that that's not an isolated experience. Like, there has to be so many people who are first introduced to sexuality in one form or another in these interviews, and it's in a negative connotation. So, like, suddenly, sexuality as a whole is coming off in this negative way, in this way where you have to report to the bishop if you engage in it at all. Yeah, and, and that could be a scary or uncomfortable or traumatic experience at its worst. And, and yeah, I, th I think our research really did try to pull in what are the other social factors that lead to healthy sexuality. Just, we know that there's a biological clock ticking yeah. inside of all of these missionaries. <laughs> and we know that psychologically they've been primed to maybe associate their sexual behaviors with very, very negative thought processes and patterns and emotions that they don't know how to process adequately. And, and what is the church doing to provide support in that area is there anything and uh really like with a lot of the missionaries and with a lot of youth there's just not a lot of support psychologically um bishops are not always trained to do it well mission presidents are not off always trained to do it well uh, and a lot of them were raised to think about masturbation and pornography in a different era completely with even different messages, tie your hand to the bedpost with your necktie <laughs> if you feel tempted and <laughs> some of that kind of very extreme um, self-censorship that was encouraged or, or maybe even bodily harm to yourself 
you know, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. And you, you could take those messages to a logical extreme that is not healthy. Who were you reporting to with this information and, and what did they do with it? Uh, this went to the top leadership of the missionary department. Okay. They were working on developing some kind of resources for missionaries, you know, what to do when you're feeling tempted and and kind of explaining some of these things that maybe should have been explained by a parent or a school counselor or someone else <laughs> earlier in their life. But first of all, this feeling is normal. Second of all, you've been asked to control this. And, you know, third, you know, here's, here's what to do. If you make a mistake, don't hate yourself. Don't, um, don't throw your whole life down the drain because you think that you're beyond saving. Like it's not that serious. Was anything implemented? Were any programs um, implemented during your time there after this research was presented? Yeah. um, A lot of it tended to be very kind of instruction-based training for missionaries. Uh, So they they had new videos. Uh, Some of the listeners are probably aware of like the district missionary training videos where you kind of follow a, a group of missionaries through their daily activities and it shows you what to do, what not to do. So there were some new updated videos to add to that that just kind of went into like, here's how you take care of your device and use it properly. Like, do use it for this. Do use it for this. Don't use it this way. Or don't take it in the bathroom with you. Don't be alone (laughs) without your companion with your device. Um, So a lot of that kind of thing. But yeah, I think there were also some training materials for mission presidents. And especially like in the early days of pilot testing this, we we expanded the mobile device range very gradually over about three or four years. Um, and so continually kind of iterating on, hey, mission president, you're getting this for the first time. Here's what to know. Here's how to respond to frequently asked questions kind of based on other people's trial and error. Uh, and some of their mistakes or things that went particularly well and just kind of helping to prepare mission presidents to better respond to some of these uh, issues and concerns and questions that come up from the missionaries. As you are implementing these programs and I'm assuming continuing to do these annual surveys where people are self-reporting, was there a noticeable decline or incline or was it was that were the numbers did they maintain about the same yeah so the first year that we did the survey was a baseline before anybody had any access to mobile devices at that time it was something like 25 percent of elders in some missions uh would report that was kind of the highest level the average was lower than that uh some missions had you know zero to two percent of elders reporting that they had looked at pornography wow and that may have been partly true, may have been uh, response bias or things like that. But it, I think there are missions, and we saw this pretty clearly. Some missions have a culture of openness and transparency, and it's not a shameful thing to go talk to your mission president about it. Um, and we did see maybe higher levels there. Among sisters, it was always consistently below 2% of all sisters. Uh, and there was never any kind of spike in that data or, uh, even much room to drop. So I think they kind of started at the lowest baseline they could have. Um, so even with all the trainings, those numbers obviously didn't change, uh, for, for elders, we did see a significant drop after implementing these programs. 
yep, after we started kind of beefing up the trainings and, and providing additional resources, we did see those levels of pornography use drop, uh, especially in that first year. And then as we continued doing this, especially in those missions where maybe the mission had had mobile devices for longer, maybe the trainings had worn off a little bit, you definitely start to see that uh, trend go back up a little bit. After the end of about four or five years, or probably four years, uh, the average pornography use levels on the mobile devices was at or above what it had been in the baseline prior to even launching. So no noticeable difference overall. Yeah, so, so it's a temporary impact, right? When you first launch all of these resources and safeguards, uh, people are very conscious of it. They're trying to do it right. But after two years, you have a fresh group of missionaries. Yeah, they've never had those programs. and None of them were there when it was first unveiled, and they had a general authority visit to come announce it. And so that kind of big impact, high visibility training no longer exists for anyone who's still there. And so, so that's really the point where you kind of start to see it just becoming just like before. Was there any plan to do with this information that it was normalized? Or I mean, I know you, you probably weren't there after after this. Uh... Yeah, that's that's kind of the last point where I saw it. Um, I and and I do know that there's somebody somewhere in the church organization still kind of monitoring this or trying to figure out how to how to tackle this issue. It's it's always going to be an issue. I think they understand this is endemic. It's uh, it's never really going to go away. The best you can do is kind of manage the expectations and manage what you can. What department or who was who was having you guys do these surveys and who was looking at this information? Like who was who was interested in it? That survey went directly to a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, um, kind of bypassing most of even the top missionary department leadership like maybe one person in missionary department at the very top would see it. Um, and at that level, it was, it was higher for a lot of the qualitative work or the interviews that we did or general practices that weren't specific to pornography. Those were much more widely shared, but we always had people asking, can I get the results? Like I heard that there's something can I see, <laughs> can I see which missions need help or can I see, uh, and we always just had to say no because of the privacy of the missionaries we promised them there's no way that we can identify who you are individually but if your mission only has 120 people in it and we reveal that your mission has a rate of pornography use of 35 percent among elders you know that Mm -hmm. it's going to narrow down the number that narrows it down and then people might assume things about the missionaries and uh, so we always just had to say, no, you can't have any of that data, even if it would help you do your job. The answer is no. This has been fascinating. I, I, I just want to keep picking your brain. I know there's areas that we haven't continued to dive into that we talked about. I'd love to do another round. Okay. I think the only thing I'll say right now while we're still on this topic is that we also had mission presidents asking for specific information. So we'd visit the missions and they'd say, hey... I know that you're doing this kind of work. Is there any way that you could let me know which missionaries I need to work with? Fascinating. So they're they're trying to find out who to to focus on. Yeah, and and I don't think it was who to send home. I think it was honestly like I have a spiritual responsibility for this person. 
uh, and I want to help. Uh, but that was another case just very clearly. We had to say, no, that's not something we can do. If they feel comfortable talking to you, they will. But that's their responsibility, not mine. Fascinating. Wow. <laughs> well, this has been this has been so eye-opening to see how the the use of these surveys and this information has affected and monitored the implementation of these different programs. This has just been so eye-opening to me. And I am so grateful to bring you onto the show. This has been so much fun. If you're willing, I'd love to bring you back on because we've got more more to talk about. Yeah, we've only scratched the surface. Yeah, we've only scratched the surface. I would love to be able to bring you back on and talk about a couple of the other things that you had a direct hand in. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to. Well, thank you so much again for for coming on. I think this was fascinating. I know the listeners listeners are going to love it. It's a, a unique peek behind the curtain. There's there's just so much more that we need to cover. So until next week, we'll bring you back on and we will we will keep going with this conversation. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming back on, Brian. I am so grateful that Brian was willing to come on and discuss some of these projects that he worked on. The unique insight into the research and statistics used to make some of the decisions behind the scenes is so fascinating. I want to again thank Brian for offering me his time and giving me a couple hours a few weeks in a row of his time to do these interviews is a big ask and I I really appreciate his his willingness to discuss this and make it um, available for those of us in this community. So once again, thank you so much. Wherever you find yourself out there, I hope that you have an excellent day.